Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes. I hope you enjoy. Today, my guest is Coleman Barks. Coleman Barks is a leading scholar and translator of the 13th century Persian mystic Jalaluddin Rumi, He taught poetry and creative writing at the University of Georgia for 30 years and is the author of numerous Rumi translations and has been a student of Sufism since 1977. His work with Rumi was the subject of an hour-long segment in Bill Moyer's Language of Life series on PBS. With Sounds True, Coleman Barks has released the audio programs I Want Burning, The Ecstatic World of Rumi Hafiz and Lala, a CD called Rumi, Voice of Longing, and also a brand new, beautiful three CD collection, which is a collaboration between Coleman Barks and cellist David Darling. It's called Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Coleman Barks and I spoke about the relationship between Rumi and his teacher, whom he called the friend, Shams of Tabriz, and how Coleman received insight into this friendship based on his own relationship with a Sufi teacher named Guru Bawa, Bawa Muhayyadeen. We also spoke about how Coleman first began translating Rumi and how the translation process involves Coleman falling into a type of trance as part of the process. Finally, Coleman and I spoke about grace, and as part of our conversation, we listened to some new pieces from the recording, Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship. Here's my very heart-opening conversation with Coleman Barks. Coleman, I want to begin just by saying that I'm so happy to be speaking with you because even though we've known each other for a long time, I've never had the chance to have this kind of conversation with you about your work. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. To begin with, I wanted to talk a little bit about the process of translation and your process, what you go through when you take a poem a poem that was originally written in Persian and then translated into English by somebody else, and then you turn it into a Coleman Barks translation. 
Can you tell us how that process goes for you? Well, it's a little mysterious. Um, I go into a kind of a trance reading the poem the, in its scholarly translation and try to, well, like, it's a, no, nothing marvelous about it. It's just, uh, it's a kind of a trance that any reading in, involves uh, where I try to feel what uh, spiritual information is trying to come through Rumi's images. And then I try to put that in, uh, into a, an American free verse poem in the tradition of uh, Walt Whitman and many others. So that is the general lineaments of the process. Do you ever have a concern, you know, how much of this is Coleman and how much of this is Rumi? And am I taking too much poetic license here? I mean, how do you sort that out? I try to, um, I don't make it up images. So I take his images and then uh, try to expand on them. Uh, this is not uh, poetry that is word for word, of course. And it's, you wouldn't call it even faithful because I don't know the original language, you know. I don't know Farsi. I, I did not hear Remy's name until I was 39 years old, way too old to, to learn the language. And besides, I'm lazy, you know. So uh, I just love the, the um, medium that I go into to do this work. It feels like a different kind of something outside the mind. Uh, call it the heart or the soul, but it's uh, it's somewhere different than my ordinary mentality. And I, it just gives me great pleasure to be able to enter that region of consciousness. It feels like, a, like I'm almost being able to, to breathe underwater, you know? some kind of it is a breathing uh, way of uh, a new way of sort, sort of being in the rapture of being in a body you know Rumi says it's um, just being sentient and in a form in a body is cause for great great joy mm. <laughs> and uh, I agree with that you know, I've somehow, um, that part is in my DNA. I just love um, being alive. And uh, Rumi did too. And I think that's why we uh, gravitate toward him, because he, he restores the ecstatic dimension of consciousness. And we may have forgotten about that some. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Now, when you say that you don't make up images, but you work with the images that are in the original, I would think mm-hmm. it would be tempting that you know one image leads to another image leads. I mean, they 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 can cascade. Yeah, that's that's the form of his um, um, odes, his gazals. Uh, they are just one image after another, usually, and they each are uh, expounding a. Um, some kind of a uh, 
psychic process like uh, emptiness or, or the, what, whatever the moth flying into the flame means, you know, that disappearing into one's love. Uh, and uh, he, he is uh, amazing at uh, exfoliating the, the imagery of that, uh, that idea of surrender. And, uh, yeah, but I don't help him. I don't make up the images with him, you know. Uh, I'm, I may be guilty of that sometime, but uh, I can't think of one right now. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. now you, you mentioned that you didn't even hear Rumi's name till you were in your late 30s. And I'm curious, when you, you know, when you heard his name or you read your first Rumi poem, did you immediately go up into flames or something like that? I mean, <laughs> the karma of your life was about to be forever uh, changed. Hmm. That's certainly true, but um, not exactly the first one. Um, that was at a Robert Bly conference where he thought it would be a great uh, afternoon writing exercise to take a Rumi poem in a scholarly translation and um, rephrase it into free verse. And so we did that for an afternoon. And he gave me the book. He said, uh, these poems need to be released from their cages, meaning the cages of the scholarly language. and uh, made more alive and more free, and um, and I've been trying to do that now for 34 years. Uh, but it was after I got back to Athens, Georgia, and got to to working alone with the the poems uh, that I really felt the freedom. And the, the something very new was happening, and and also something very old and deeply familiar to me. Uh, I don't know how to explain that, but that's the way it felt. And it was just like a huge uh, form of relaxation, you know. That's what it felt like. Hmm. Hmm. I'm curious if there was a moment when it dawned on you, I'm going to be spending a lot of time working on these poems. This is really going to become the focus of my life. Mm-hmm. I worked on them just as a practice for seven years before I even thought of publishing them. You know, it didn't uh, occur to me that there would be an audience for this. But, um, well, maybe that's not entirely true, but it was in the back of my mind, I guess. But um, uh, I didn't publish a book till uh, from 1976 when I started to 1984 when Open Secret came out. Then it became um, apparent that these were useful to people. And uh, so, I, well, I was, I was going to, keep doing it anyway but but it's a different thing when you have an audience for you what you do in your solitude you know and then finally uh, Harper Collins got hold of it in 1995 and uh, and now um, 
about a, a million and a half copies have been sold. So it's it's a publishing phenomenon that um, nobody quite understands. Now, I'm interested, you said something that it's different when you're aware of an audience or there's an audience for what you're doing. What changed? Yeah. What changed once it was clear that there was an audience for these translations? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, I got some very educated feedback and some beautiful uh, critique by people who know this material and these states of awareness much better than I do, you know. So, and I found a found a Sufi teacher too through uh, doing this work. But uh, what I was thinking about it was a, a Pirvilayat Khan gave these poems a, a good reading, and they said, you know, uh, the your poems used to be more sensual and more sexual. It says, but now they don't seem to be that way. Now, uh, and I said, yeah, that was because I was more sensual and sexual when I was doing them. And uh, so, there, you know, of course, the voice of the translator does come through. Uh, I have to use my own experience and my own um, voice to do these uh, these translations. And I, what I try to do, of course, is to make a valid and a lively poem in American English. And uh, I'm not interested in a scholarly translation. And I'm, I'm very grateful to the scholars because they have allowed, allowed me to, to do this work. But um, I can't continue that kind of... Uh, language you know I come I have to make it more alive mm-hmm. more vibrant now you said Coleman that when you started doing these translations of the Rumi poems there was a sense of familiarity and mm. a, a relaxation into the process mm. and I, I'm curious in your inner world what your relationship with Rumi and Shams feels like Hmm. Um, I want to be sure not to uh, tell any lies here. That's <laughs> no. good. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Take yeah. your take your yeah. time. I'm I'm happy to wait. For, I'm happy to wait for the truth. <laughs> Rumi and Shams in my own life. Yeah, what they're like. Uh, what, what your relationships like inside of you with with them. Do they feel like legends? Do they feel like friends that you have? Like actual, I mean, yeah. what, what's it feel like inside? Uh-huh. More like that. Um, my teacher, Bawa Muhayyadeen, once told me, he said, you, you know, Rumi and Shams are, to me, talking about himself, uh, are not literary figures. They are not people in a book. Uh, I know them, he said, like I know you. And uh, so uh, that gave me a sense. He allowed me, I think, entrance into the 
um, vast identity of that those two and that friendship uh, somehow if I hadn't met him it wouldn't be the same uh, my access to the poems would not be as intimate maybe as it feels now yeah, I'm glad you asked that mm-hmm. and tell me a little bit when did you meet Bawa Muhadi? well I met him yeah. in a dream you know this and um, and then a year and a half later, I met him in this more solid world. But uh, I have had several precognitive dreams, and um, uh, it's a just to, to me a mysterious fact of existence that the the mind in dream consciousness can go forward in time and uh, see something, a scene maybe, that um, will become apparent on the retina two years afterward. I don't know how that happens, but it is has been my experience. Uh, not, not a lot of times, but it has happened. And uh, so... Uh, that's what happened with him, uh, that he he was able to come to me in dream consciousness. And uh, the dreams became lucid. Uh, that I, was, I woke up inside the dream and uh, became aware that I was dreaming, but I was still asleep. And in the dream that I met him, uh, I was sleeping out on a bluff above the Tennessee River where I grew up and where the school was that I grew up at. My father was a headmaster and um, just five miles north of Chattanooga on the Tennessee River. And uh, it was night and uh, I I woke up inside the dream and a ball of light rose off of Williams Island and came over me and uh, clarified from the inside out. And a man was sitting in there and he, with his head bowed and a white shawl over his head. And he raised his head and he said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And uh, the whole landscape filled with uh, dew or the moisture. And, uh, and the moisture somehow was love. It was just spread out through the landscape. I, I felt the process of the dew forming. This is all very mysterious, and uh, but it did, it did, as far as I know, happen to me. And then uh, a year and a half later, I met him in Philadelphia, and um, he said this roomy work that it had to be done, and. Uh, I assume that that meant that he, he was going to help me with it, because, and I think uh, he has, in some mysterious way, been part of the process. So, Did you know when you had the dream that it was an important dream? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'd um, started writing.
writing my dreams down in 19, early 1970s, and uh, I kept. I now have about 90 dream notebooks, and I still write them down. And uh, yeah, it felt like uh, I've never had a man appear in a ball of light before, <laughs> and never, nor since either. And uh, uh, he could visit me in the in the dreams, and he and he did. And I would go up to Philadelphia and start telling him the dream, and we, he would say, "You don't need to tell me that. I I was there, you know." So he had the ability to do that. There are people who are are on other planes of existence, and uh, I was got really lucky and met one of them. After you had the dream, did you seek him out? Did you? No, no. So, no. so it just by chance happened that a year and a half later you met this person. And we're like, oh my god. Well, it was uh, it was somewhat con- uh, connected to this work very much. Uh, I sent some of these versions, translations, to a friend of mine who was teaching uh, law at uh, Rutgers University at uh, Camden, the Camden division. And he read them to his torts class, and a man came up out of the audience, and and uh, it was Jonathan Granoff, and Jonathan said, "Who did those poems?" And uh, Milner Ball gave Jonathan my name, and Jonathan started writing to me, and he said, "There's this teacher in Philadelphia that I think you should meet," and so on one poetry reading jaunt uh, up there. I, I stopped into Philadelphia and, and met Jonathan and then met um, this teacher and I realized that he was the one in my dream. And nobody can uh, nobody would know that except myself and him. You know. But uh, but he's such a distinctive looking person with these magnificent uh, deep eyes that uh, he's very recognizable so uh, that's the way that actually the meeting actually happened did you feel there was something in your relationship with Bawa Muhayyadeen that was similar to the relationship between Rumi and Shams and that's part of what gave you an appreciation of that a teacher-student dynamic it feels very felt very deep and still feels deep and it's like a uh, so at least since he died in 1986 um, feels like it's become more like a friendship that uh, than a teacher student thing uh, so yeah I do feel that it's a it's a lot to claim, but uh, I feel that, you know. Well, it's wonderful that you bring up the friendship word. You've just mm. published through Sounds True a three-CD collection along with David Darling, the cellist, called Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship. And in just a moment, I want to hear a piece from that three-CD collection 
but maybe you could say a few words as a way of introduction about this central idea of friendship, Rumi and human friendship. Well, he said that if friendship can change from being a relationship, it is that. It's very specific. And Shams of Tabriz is an actual person from an actual town. And, and um, it is a specific relationship, but it can widen and broaden out to include and become a kind of atmosphere that one walks within. Or in one of his startling metaphors, he said, what was just a person is now a holiday without limits. You know, suddenly the the person and the relationship becomes just something like a day off, you know, <laughs> just a great sense of freedom and uh, expansion, like a holiday. So, and then in another place, he said that the charms had become what anybody says, just any conversation going on is like a, he's overhearing his beloved. He's, he, his, uh, it's, it's become part of uh, the fabric of his, his life. So maybe we, we should hear part of that uh, sad, three CDs sad. Yeah, and uh, I do think you might have some precognitive abilities as well because the track that I've queued up, which you wouldn't know, is called Holiday Without Limits. And this is from the... Who's in charge here? Exactly. From Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship. Let's listen. Holiday without limits. Going into battle, we carry no shield. Playing in concert, unaware of the beat or the melody, we have become grains in the ground underfoot. Fold on fold, layers of love, nothing else. Obliterated as when the eye medicine is no longer even a powder, then it can cure sight. An accident gradually gets accepted as the thing that needed to happen. Sickness melts into health. There is nothing worse than staying congealed. Let your liver dissolve to blood. Let your heart break into such tiny pieces it cannot be found. The moon orb wanes 
Then for three days, you could say that there is no moon. That is the moon that has drawn so close to the sun. It is nowhere and everywhere. Send us someone who can sing music for the soul. Though we know such longing cannot rise from a lute or a tambourine, not from the sun or Venus or any star, as day comes, Give back the night fantasy things you stole. Admit your arrogance as the stars do at dawn. When the sun goes down, Venus begins bragging, claiming light, arguing her loveliness over the moons. Jupiter lifts a gold coin from his bag. Mars shows the sharpness of his blade to Saturn. Mercury sits on a high seat and gives himself successive titles. That is how it goes. In the middle of the night, then dawn, Jupiter is suddenly poor. Mars and Saturn have no plans. Venus and the moon run away, broken and terrified. Then the sun within the sun enters. And this night and day talk seems a meaningless convention, the lighting business. A true holy day for a man or a woman is the one when they bring themselves as the sacrifice. When Shams shone his light from nowhere I felt a holiday without limits begin. Where once was just a person. A true holy day for a man or woman is the one when they bring themselves as the sacrifice. When Shams shone his light from nowhere, I felt a holiday without limits begin. Where once 
was just a person. Coleman, it seems to me that it has so many layers of meaning that you created a collection of translations with music on Rumi and human friendship with someone who is, in fact, a dear friend of yours, David Darling, yeah, the musician. That's right. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process of working together and, and how it informed a, a record on friendship. Yeah. David Darling and I have, uh, for a long time, have wanted to make something um, with the cello and uh, his music and Rumi's poetry and maybe some of my own poetry that has a kind of orchestral feel to something more vast than the single instrument. And so he has created this music and... uh, he would uh, put something on, uh, like uh, a track, and um, then I would just feel what poem might go with that music. And uh, it seemed to work out pretty well. Sometimes it would uh, happen that way, and sometimes I would start reading the poem, and he would uh, put the music with it. But it worked both ways. First first the boards, then the music, then the music, and vice versa. But um, his delight in uh, the process and in the poetry, and then of course in the music, is uh, apparent throughout. He's got great freshness and joyfulness about him. And uh, I just uh, really enjoy his presence. And uh, and I think he likes to be hang out with me too. So we we enjoy being in his sound studio in the woods of Connecticut and uh, putting this together. It was it was a, it was not work. It was very much play, and uh, we loved doing it. I think part of what's underneath my question is I'd love to understand more what friendship means to you, Coleman Barks. Mm. I mean, part of part of the project, you're exploring Rumi and human friendship. But I'm also interested in knowing what it means for you. Mm. Well, I mean, what can you say? It, it's the, the opening of the heart, isn't it? Some kind of feeling of a new way of being uh, that is, and as as I say in the notes, uh, a new way of breathing, maybe, that's uh, not so fearful and not so uh, sad. When you meet a new friend, the, the world has more light in it, doesn't it? But things become become more spontaneous and more full of uh, 
laughing and freedom and novelty somehow. And I hope all that is apparent in this uh, three-CD set. I hope it is, yeah. One of the comments you made in the liner notes that I thought was interesting was you were talking about how in Rumi's poetry the sun is often a central image in understanding human friendship. Shams means the sun. So whenever sunlight is mentioned or the dawn coming up, uh, it's a, it's always a, a reference to Shams and his friendship and his love for him and their love for each other. It's uh, w- one of the great images. Uh, it's like a little secret he sells always in his is a poems that the world is always asking you to open up and be more loving you know the uh, the candle is a second by its burning is telling you the moth by going into the candle is telling you to do that and music is it wine is always telling you to uh give up the bouquet and the names and all again just run wild and anonymous <laughs> through the human brain yeah and uh at the end of a poem i didn't put in on this uh, collection he says everything begs with the silent rocks for you to be flung out like light over this plane the presence of shams to breeze yeah uh so light itself and uh, probably seeing itself and hearing and seeing just being alive is uh, for him the presence of uh, of uh, the friend the friendship the beloved What uh, you can't say much about that mystery but it's certainly central to Whatever religion is in these poems, it's a, it's a religion of deep friendship and light and uh, music, too, I think. Often the, the image of a flute comes in and uh, the um, emptiness that has to happen for the flute to make music, you know and then the emptiness of the flute player. And uh, those two emptinesses uh, are somehow related to love. And the merging of the emptinesses are, are related to this new kind of love that that uh, Rumi and Shams are bringing to us. I think it's new even though it's uh, eight centuries old. I don't know that we've lived it out yet. It's a new kind of way of being and a new depth of inwardness and joy and sharing. But when you try to start talking about it, it just uh, disappears almost. (laughs) So the best way to talk about it is through poetry and with music. So let's listen to another one. Okay. We'll listen to a piece, this is called Raggedness, 
And this is also from Just Being Here, Rumi and Human Friendship. Maybe you can introduce it for us, Colin. Well, this is a lot of changes that happen in um, a student-teacher relationship. You will see I was dead and then alive. and So it's all about the continuous changing uh, um, nature of a relationship where maybe a a teacher is involved, but nobody knows who is the student and who is the teacher. It keeps keeps, uh, changing back and forth. Uh, Okay, let's hear it. I was dead, then alive, weeping, then laughing. The power of love came into me, and I became fierce like a lion, then tender like the evening star. He said, you're not mad enough. You don't belong in this house. I went wild and had to be tied up. He said, still not wild enough to stay with us. I broke through another layer into joyfulness. He said, it's not enough. I died. He said, you're a clever little man full of fantasy and doubting. I plucked out my feathers and became a fool. He said, now you're the candle for this assembly. But I'm no candle, look, I'm scattered smoke. He said, you are the sheikh, the guide, but I'm not a teacher. I have no power. He said, you already have wings. I cannot give you wings. But I wanted his wings. I felt like some flightless chicken. Then new events said to me, don't move. A sublime generosity is coming toward you. And old love said, stay with me. I said, I will. You are the fountain of the sun's light. I am a willow shadow on the ground. You are the fountain of the sun's light. I am a willow shadow on the ground. You make my raggedness silky. I was dead, then alive, weeping, then laughing. The power of love came into me, 
And I became fierce like a lion, then tender, like the evening star. You are the fountain of the sun's light. I am a willow shadow on the ground. You make my raggedness silky. I love that. It's so beautiful, Coleman. That uh, image of that uh, flowing shadow on the ground as being silky is just gorgeously fresh, isn't it? Yes. It's, uh, so uh, so new. Mm. One of the things I'd love to hear more about, if it's okay, it's a little personal, but I've never heard you talk really about your relationship with Bawa Muhayyadeen, mm. Guru Bawa, easier to mm-hmm. say that. And you've told us now a little bit about the initial meeting in the dream and then when you first saw him. But I'm, I'm wondering how that relationship progressed for you and then at the time of his death and now after his death, 20 plus years, what that's all like for you. Huh. Um, he used to come in dreams after he died. and uh, But he hasn't been in several years now. Uh, I don't know what that means. But uh, I still feel uh, very close to him, and I love to go to visit his tomb there where he's buried outside of of Philadelphia. It feels very good to be there. Let's see. He came in a dream once and uh, taught He was teaching me how to take tiny little sips out of a glass of water, I think. And uh, so tiny, it's like a little bee or a butterfly or something drinking. And I said, what does this mean? And uh, he says, you want to be wise too quickly. Don't just take one sip of wisdom and assimilate that. And so... That was good advice. And, uh, to don't be in a hurry with the, with the wisdom. Just take it. Uh, don't get greedy with it. I don't know that I've learned that yet. And <laughs> another in the same dream, he was teaching me to bow all the way down. He said my back was a little stiff. I needed to bow all the way down. So. I think I know what that means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little too much pride. And uh, so I need to do the full prostration. On, yeah. Well, I'm sure other incidents would occur to me, but they're just not right now. Anyway. Gives me a feeling. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You, you mentioned, Coleman, in your own writing and and translation of Rumi's poetry that you began as a practice. And I'm curious if you have any suggestions for people in terms of listening 
to huh. your readings or engaging with your Rumi translations, the books, how, how they would approach it as a type of practice? Hmm. I have a little practice that I have done. I didn't today, but I like to listen to uh, Stephen Mitchell's translations of Rilke. You know, and have the text there of the Duino elegies uh, out in front of me. So I listen to Stephen read his translations of them. And I just wait with a blank piece of paper to see uh, what might come to me ideas or for writing or for my life or whatever. And uh, that seems to be a, to listen to poetry. And. Uh, with uh, the text there and um, and a blank piece of paper next to that, that you know, just to see what you might want to put down as a inspiration from uh, from the uh, poetry being read out loud. There's a great uh, connection, I think, between a voice saying the poem and your eardrum and your writing ability too so it's a very intimate thing going on I think between a spoken voice and a listening ear you know and though well Rumi has a poem about listening he says uh you should give more of your time to the deep listening and uh, there's a implied sort of practice there that you can go deeper into your own inwardness your own soul and heart and uh, by listening and uh, I don't really have a practice except writing the poetry my own and and these uh, rephrasings of Rumi uh, that's the only thing that I'm really faithfully uh, attentive to every day I, I don't do meditation oh 20 minutes here and there but uh, not so you'd call it the practice but uh I do the writing every day. I give time to that. And uh, I would recommend anybody that wants to do writing that you just don't wait to be inspired. Try to coax inspiration out of you. And you can do that by listening to any number of sounds true um Productions. All right, Coleman. <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, you do good work, Tammy. Now, you know, I want to end actually by listening to a piece from one of my favorite CDs, Coleman. This is from, God, almost 20 years ago that we recorded this, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. It's called I Want Burning, The Ecstatic uh-huh. World of Rumi, Hafiz, and Lala. In just a moment, we'll hear that. But before okay. we do, I I want to say how happy I am to be speaking with you, especially some of our listeners may know this, some people may not. 
but you had a stroke. What just? I did uh, in February. Yeah, I mean, less than uh, a year ago, and you're doing so yeah. fabulously. Well, yeah, I can hear, you know, glitches and halts in my voice, and uh, hey, I'm sorry about that, but um, it's just uh, the, the way of the world, the way of the body. And, uh, but I'm, I'm very, very lucky to be able to uh, speak with any fluency at all, and uh, so I'm, I'm proud to be here. I'm wondering if the experience changed you in any way? I mean, all experience changes us, but how this yeah. experience changed you? Uh, it makes me feel more um, fragile, more, more broken open, more less um, glib, as I say, less, um, and less uh, proud of myself. Uh, it ought to make things funnier, but <laughs> I don't think it does. You know, having a stroke is a strange experience because it doesn't hurt, you know. You don't know you're having it unless you happen to be, as I was, talking on the phone to my sweetie, Lisa Starr. And I was just talking and it became unintelligible, you know, so... Immediately, I drove myself to the um, emergency room and um, checked myself in and got that uh, treatment called TPA, I think, that only 2% of the stroke victims get there in time to have, but uh, it uh, it helps you to recuperate and recover uh, much better than you would otherwise. So I've been very fortunate, and uh, that's part of my sense of things, too, uh, the change sense of that I feel just very lucky. And uh, I don't know, I guess sort of quiet, uh, a little quieter than I was before. Uh, and I, at least I hear it in my voice, and... Uh, I'm sure the uh, people listening to can hear the difference between the recorded voice before the stroke and the, and my voice now. But it's very, very uh, minor. Uh, very minor. Resonant, and, yeah. resonant. Anyway. I'll, it's very uh, minor. And I feel okay. so so happy that uh, me too. six months later. And, you know, it's, it's curious because you, you mentioned when Guru Bawa came mm. to you in a dream that you felt, I was so lucky. And here you were able to drive yourself mm -hmm. immediately and, and mm -hmm. receive a treatment that only 2% of the... I feel so lucky. And, I mean, yeah. do, do, you, is, do you think... I mean, is luck just what it is on face value? I mean... No, I mean, I, I would... I don't mind using the word grace. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a gift. Uh, I don't know what kind of a, um, presence is a, we're living within, but... Uh, I feel the gift of that uh, more. It is more precious to me uh, because of this uh, stroke. Uh, I think it's it, the grace is just always happening. It feels like to me, and uh, it's a. Uh, and that's certainly what Rumi's poetry is. It, it's just filled with that sense of. 
gratitude and and gracefulness and a sense of a kind of hilarity about the whole thing. Uh, anyway, let's hear the. This the, is a this is a piece. It's called know. "Like This." Uh, oh yeah. I just love this piece and uh, this whole actual recording. It's a live recording where you were performing down in Santa Fe. And I often refer to this production, I Want Burning, The Ecstatic World of Rumi, Hafiz, and Lala, as a little jewel. The whole CD is a little jewel. Let's listen. One thing Rumi does, um, it's amazing. He um, talks about uh, the terms of spirituality, and he grounds them in the reality of an experience. He says uh, that all the terms like spirit and um, guide and all those things, they have their God's fragrance. Those things have a refer to something experiential, as real as a, a friend of yours who th- you thought were, was out of town surprising you by putting his head around the corner of your door. It's that real. If anyone asks you, how the perfect satisfaction of all our sexual wanting will look. Lift your face and say, like this. When someone mentions the gracefulness of the night sky, climb up on the roof and dance and say, like this. If you want to know what spirit means, or what God's fragrance is. Lean your head toward him or her. Keep your face there close, like this. When someone quotes the old poetic image about clouds gradually uncovering the moon, slowly loosen knot by knot the strings of your this. If anyone wants to know how Jesus raised the dead, don't try to explain the miracle. Kiss me on the lips like this, like this. When someone asks what it means to die for love, point here. If someone asks how tall I am, frown and measure with your fingers the space between the creases on your forehead, this tall. The soul sometimes leaves the body and then returns. When someone doesn't believe that, walk back into my house like this. When lovers moan, they're telling our story like this. I'm a sky where spirits live, stare into this deepening blue while the breeze says a secret like this. When someone asks what there is to do, Light the candle in his hand 
like this? How did Joseph's scent come to Jacob? Who? How did Jacob's sight return? A little wind cleans the eyes like this. When Shams comes back from Tabriz, he'll put just his head around the edge of the door to surprise us. And Coleman, just like this, this moment sharing this time with you, I just want to thank you so much for uh, being here with me, for all of the work that you've done really to bring Rumi to so many of us. I mean, I, there are no words to describe how, how yeah. valuable it is. And thank you for your work. You're doing such a beautiful job on this uh, three-CD set. It's just this perfectly done very lovingly done and uh, so thanks for that babe thank you and I love you okay Coleman Barks and David Darling recently releasing a three CD collection with Sounds True called Just Being Here Rumi and Human Friendship a beautiful beautiful collection as well with Coleman Barks Sounds True has two previous releases We just heard from I Want Burning, The Ecstatic World of Rumi, Hafiz, and Lala, and also a previous release called Rumi, Voice of Longing, that has Marcus Wise on the tabla and David Whetstone on sitar. Coleman, God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Be well. Okay. Bye-bye. See you later. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together. I believe we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.